You can do anything you want. You are bound by nothing. What are you passionate about? What do you want? Your dreams. You've got to keep dreaming. You know, ambition can be a bit of a two-edged sword. It can be a very creative kind of motivator. Or it can be a source of self-destruction. Your better future is a dream for yourself and for your family. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What do you want to be? What do you want to see? Welcome to Strive, a podcast exploring the pleasures and pitfalls of modern ambition. Episode one was called Winning, and we explored ambition through the metaphor of archery. Episode two, Dreaming, was about the scale of our dreams. How big should they be, and when should we wind them back? Here, in this final episode, we're examining staying the course over time. Perseverance. And boy, have we needed it for this. <laughs> How long have we been working on this project, Rach? Um, well, we came up with the idea in 2014 when we were touring our last show, so that's about three years. And how long have we been working on this episode? <laughs> oh, yep. my goodness. Um, I, don't, I don't know. We've come across a lot of barriers and obstacles along the way, not to mention how hard it actually turns out to be to make a podcast. Some part of us thought it would be easy, that, that you just do some interviews, edit them together, get a sound designer, bingo. But the reality has been quite different. And so many times we thought we'd cracked this episode and finished, and then we'd listen back to the edit and realise, nah, it still needs some more work. And since we started, our lives have dramatically changed as well. Mike, you ran for local council and got elected. Yes, and, and Rachel, <laughs> you had a baby. Yeah. And both of those things have made it especially hard to find time to get together with our sound designer, who is also very busy in the last few months. But we've pushed on. And at times it would have been easier to quit. But here we are, pushing through in episode three, ironically called Perseverance. So what is it? Why do we persevere, endure stress and make sacrifices? What are the benefits? What keeps us going despite the difficulties? It's funny, one of the inspirations for running for council was that I interviewed Greens candidate Alex Patel. She's a social worker, refugee activist, environmentalist and candidate for the Australian Greens. We were looking for examples of perseverance and I went and interviewed Alex because she had been campaigning in the federal seat of Batman for 15 years. I followed her and her supporters in her fifth attempt. This campaign was her closest yet. She was about a month out from election day and the polls were looking really strong. So for us, we're focused in a really very sharp way on winning this seat in just a few weeks. But it's, it's been a long campaign, but I like long campaigns, so they suit me. I'm more of a sort of marathon type person than a sprinting type person. You know, when I first ran, my oldest son was a little baby and now he's six foot one and he's 15. 15 years. Do you think that time is the critical factor in perseverance? Or is it the amount of adversity you overcome? Or is it what you sacrifice? Well, if time is the measure of perseverance, Alex Patel has got that covered. And adversity. Running for parliament requires a huge effort. Each time she runs, she puts her career on hold and volunteers her time for months. What drives her? We are surrounded by people who believe in social justice, in human rights and in protecting the environment, but we haven't had the representation at a federal level that lives up to our values and that lives up to the people of this seat. 
And she told us there have been moments along the journey when she seriously considered giving up. Like in 2004, her second time running, she thought she was in with a real chance. And so I was devastated. And at that, you know, the night after that election, I really did say to Peter, um, I'm not sure if I can keep doing this. It's sort of, you know, I don't think it's a worthy use of my time and of his energy supporting me. At that stage, she lost momentum and the costs were clearly stacking up. But it was a party win two years later that reinvigorated her ambition to keep running. You know, in 2006, uh, we broke through uh, into state parliament, the Greens, um, and I saw that, you know, the changes that can be made by Greens politicians and parliamentarians, and I decided to stick with it. What got her back was being reminded of her vision to make a difference. So she ran three more times over 12 years. And in 2016, on election night, as the votes were being counted, her supporters were beside themselves. All right, we're at the forum with all of the other Greens members from Victoria. And it looks like Alex's going to win and we're trying to contain our excitement. But holy crap, like, I can't. I think it's really amazing to see a woman who's been there from the start, who stayed the course, you know, through however things that are so difficult for women in politics, especially women um, of colour, and she stayed the course, you know, and it's, it feels hopeful and amazing to see that that actually works. And it's not just, you know, like the power politics that works, it's real people staying the course and fighting really hard and believing in their values. But for Alex, at the end of yet another marathon, waiting for the result was more of a roller coaster. How are you? Well, um, I'm tired and um, I'm feeling okay. I mean, the support's huge. Um, it's very close to call. Like, I just had an interview with ABC who told me that um, it's looking less likely, but then, you know, I just heard from an age journalist that it's looking more likely. Um, so the updates are coming in, and it's just going to... We're going to be buffeted around, I'd say. The seat was on a knife edge. It was so close that the vote counting went on for several more weeks. I met with her after the results came in. And, yeah, so we, um, we won the primary vote in the seat, as I think a lot of people know, uh, by about 1,000 votes, and then we lost the seat on preferences by about 1,800 votes. So that's about 1.3%, the margin. So it makes Batman one of the most marginal seats in Australia. I asked her if she's going to run again, and even though it's not her decision to make, She's ready to try. So I will run for pre-selection again. I can definitely say that. And this actually flies in the face of the biology and psychology of winning and losing that we heard about in our first episode. Winning is addictive and it keeps you going. But to lose again and again and keep going, that's something else. It requires more resolve. So we asked psychologist Robert Hart about this. We love suffering for things we love. And... We like it so much that if we suffer for something, we actually must decide we love it. You know, you think fraternities in the US, teams of initiations, that kind of thing. There's even a company called Zappos in Las Vegas in the US, which is a shoe company. And they'll hire you to come in and, and, and be a salesperson, a customer service person. They don't even pay a particularly great salary, but what they offer is a fabulous sense of belonging. If after the, the training you don't want to stay, they will pay you to leave. And you're then left with this sort of uneasy cognitive dissonance that says to you, hmm, I've turned down $3,000 to leave, I must really love this, right? So I'm going to now have to prove to myself that I've made the right decision. Maybe now, three terms in or whatever it was, you lose face if you quit. 
Is that what's driving it? So it's like sunken losses. Yeah, sunken loss syndrome, yeah. How long do you persist at something because you've spent time in it? Could it be a marriage, a relationship, a business that you run, a profession or an interest you have? It's too late to quit. That could explain some of why Alex perseveres, but her story's not entirely a sunken loss story because she's actually getting closer to her goal. Perhaps there's another explanation. Well, Rob also told us about Angela Duckworth, the researcher who studied a human quality called grit. So I would say that, that grit is sustaining passion and perseverance toward a singular long-term goal over years and years. So um, for Angela Duckworth, she looked at the, um, the four traits that gritty people have in abundance, interest, practice, purpose, and hope. Interest, practice, purpose, and hope. That sounds more like Alex. Uh, I'm more of a sort of marathon type person than a sprinting type person. These gritty qualities remind me of some of the more famous public figures, world-changing people like Nelson Mandela. He had interest and practice as a lawyer fighting apartheid, and I'd say that his sense of purpose and hope helped him to survive nearly 30 years in prison and continue to do his work. You have a limited time to stay on earth. You must try and use that period for the purpose of transforming your country into what you desire it to be. It's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the civil rights movement, you look at sports people, you look at um, people on a cause or a mission. You could argue the same with Viktor Frankl, uh, who was in a concentration camp. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, the book that he wrote millions of times, well, not millions of times, but countless numbers of times, on small scraps of paper, and a number of times that was taken away from him. But he had that as his core need to persevere through difficult times, and that was what kept him going. So, that, you know, he was in prison for years as well. Mandela had a cause, uh, Martin Luther King had a cause. Some of these people just stood the distance longer. Okay, so people who persevere display the qualities of grit. And Nelson Mandela, Viktor Frankl, Martin Luther King are all people who've displayed a lot of grit and endured major adversities over long periods of time. But do your circumstances have to be that extreme to be considered perseverance? Or is there a more everyday version? Can people still be considered gritty even if their adversity and the time spent facing it is proportionally less? Yeah, like people that we know, like your mum Kim, for example. I'd say she's gritty. Well, she's not Nelson Mandela. Sure, but if you look at her story, she does display Duckworth's four elements of grit. Interest, practice, purpose and hope. They're all there. And she's overcome adversity over a long period of time. Maybe perseverance is ambition plus adversity plus time. Kim McGregor has been a national advocate against sexual violence in New Zealand for over 30 years. She experienced abuse as an 11-year-old, and since then, she has been passionately fighting for the safety of children. When I became an adult, and I found out you know, it's like one in four females, one in eight males are likely to experience child sexual abuse, I was outraged, I guess, and I, I thought, well, the world has to know, and, and we as adults can stop this. Having spent 20 years working in the sector, Kim was made head of one of New Zealand's only organisations dedicated to the prevention of sexual violence. But most government resources were going towards victim support rather than prevention services. And when she arrived, the organisation was on the brink of bankruptcy. I just got on my horse and started educating government. 
because they just don't get it. Over the course of 10 years, she lobbied for increased government funding, not just for her organisation, but for the sector. And she rallied for the establishment of a task force for action on sexual violence. I was ringing all of these ministers and saying, you have to help. And I got doors slammed in my face all the time. In the face of rejection, funding cuts, setbacks and burnout, she persevered. Well, that's what's been said about me. I'm tenacious. That's what all the ministers have said. I'm, they've said it publicly. It's like I'm a dog with a bone. I just won't let it go. She said she was like water dripping on a stone. She wore them down. It's a perfect image for perseverance. And I was told that we would never get a task force for action on sexual violence. Some of the heads of um, the Ministry of Justice flew up from Wellington when I complained that we didn't have one and said, Kim, you're asking for too much. You're asking for funding, you're asking for a task force, you're asking for a prevention strategy. You're not going to get all of it. And I did. (laughs) (laughs) After investing all that time and effort, reaching the goal is momentous. The first day the four of us, four representatives, were walking to meet the very first task force meeting, meeting with government, meeting at their table. I cried. I just, like, you know, it was like, oh, we've made it. You know, we're actually going to the table to talk to government. They're listening. Government is finally listening to us. Little did I know, you know, every, every step is the beginning of the foothills. That's what Mandela said. After climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to climb. Every time I think I've got to the top of the mountain, it's just the foothills for the next one. The GFC hit just at that moment and all the funding was cut. The thing about my mum, though, is that her job is never done. Even if the funding hadn't been cut, she would have continued to work and work and work. That's everyday perseverance. People that just keep striving and chipping away at their work. I I see it in my dad as well. As a kid, I just remember him working. And even this past year or so, he's been trying to retire, but he can't. Even though it's put him under enormous pressure, he's been persevering to keep his research unit from having its funding cut. I interviewed him at one of his lowest moments. Um, I'm feeling that I'm getting overwhelmed by all of this. It's not helpful to my health. And that um, I'm going to need to find a way out that will decrease the pressure on me. It seems like there's a thread that connects these stories we've heard. They're all full of failure, adversity, even illness, with these tiny little wins along the way. The adversity seems so disproportionate to the successes. Yeah, and in all of our interviews, we've heard a list of personal costs. This is my dad's partner, Ruth. He has already had a stent put in his arteries, which I he doesn't think has got anything to do whatsoever with the strain of this but um, I mean he could, he could actually put, be putting his life at risk here. Unfortunately there's been a racist leaflet which has been distributed about me and my community. I burnt out, I didn't know my boundaries, I was trying to help too many people, I worked sort of 24-7, um, really unhealthy. I got to the stage where I couldn't hear one more story of trauma without dry reaching, you know, like I just couldn't cope with any more violence. I'm still pretty exhausted and I haven't really seen my husband for months. My partner at the time said, close the door and walk away because, you know, your doctors have said you need to reduce your stress levels. And I said, I can't. I can't walk away from this agency. 
Carsten Roche is a psychology professor at Concordia University in Montreal. And Carsten's looked at a number of studies. People who are better able to let go when they experience unattainable goals, they have the experience, for example, less depressive symptoms, lower cortisol levels, and they have lower levels of systemic inflammation, which is a marker of immune functioning. And they develop fewer physical health problems over time. People who are more able to quit, because they're not consciously, constantly, being anxious about grabbing that goal or letting go. I mean, he could, he could actually put, be putting his life at risk here. So you can quit and be healthy and less stressed and maybe happier, but what about your cause? Well, if the goal is unattainable... How do you know if the goal is unattainable unless you try? What if Nelson Mandela had decided to lower his stress levels? Where would South Africa be today? That's very true. But surely there's a point when the costs outweigh the quest. Risking your health, your family, or even the skin on your knees. There I was, crawling on all four, on rocks, over rocks and gravel, holding my sword right in front of me. And eventually, after 10 takes, my elbows, my knees started bleeding and hurting. And the director came to me sheepishly and said to me, he says, do you mind if we do another take? I need a close-up of you. And I said to him, no, I don't mind at all. I said, go and do as many takes as you want. He says, no, 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 I don't want to do that because I know you're in pain, you're bleeding. I said, no, 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 I don't feel any pain. I said, the only thing I see is, is the finished scene. I see the finished scene of me crawling on all four with my sword in the front, crawling up and sneaking up behind Thalsa Doom, the main villain of the Conan movie that killed my parents, and rising up behind him and cutting his head off. That's what I see. So this is why, because I visualized that scene, this is why I did not feel that pain. I did not care if I was bleeding on my knees, because I know that pain is temporary, but the film is permanent. And I explained that to the director, so this is why I try to tell you, always discover your vision, and the rest will follow. Not quite ending apartheid, but he does have a point about what motivated him to keep going through the pain, having a vision, seeing the finished product, working towards an outcome. And this idea is grounded in research. Being connected to your cause, having a vision, they're what Amy Vrzhnevsky describes as having a calling. Vrzhnevsky has three orientations towards work. She talks about job orientation firstly. This is people who fall into the category see their work as a means to an end, to pay the bills. Second one's career orientation. More likely to focus on elements related to success or prestige. That's a bit ego driven. The one which I think Rachel's mother here talks of is calling orientation. And this one is where you describe your work as integral to their lives and their identity. This takes on far more than just a job. Revnesky found that individuals with a calling orientation are more likely to find their work meaningful, will modify duties and develop relationships to make it more so. They are found to be more satisfied in general with their work and their lives. Therefore, this is no longer perseverance, it's life. And therefore, there's no willpower expended. There's no give up. It's daily life for them. We could definitely hear elements of calling when Kim and Alex spoke about what drives them. This is a problem, a societal problem, a global problem, and adults weren't dealing with it. So um, I just kept working in the field. That's why I've, I guess I've been working here in this field for 30 years this year. 
Uh, for me, it is about the biggest picture. It's about saving the planet and all the living beings in it. That's sort of what the reason, um, the underlying reason why I'm still here. What connects us to the calling in the first place? Well, both Kim and Alex described pivotal moments in their childhood that projected them onto the paths they've taken. When I was eight, um, the Whitlam government was elected. One of the first things they did was to lift the final restrictions of the White Australia policy. And I've got a vivid childhood memory from that time of my father coming home early from work one day and changing into his best white turban and going to claim his Australian citizenship. You know, it was just, I just followed, I guess, from or being abused at 11 and not having the words to, um, you know, make myself safe. So when I became an adult and I found out that there was not just me who was, I, I was outraged, I guess, and I, I thought, well, the world has to know. So personal affiliation, calling and vision are all strong motivators. But there's another thread we found in our interviews. I don't know, like, it's just injustice comes, people tell me about injustice and I'd go and try and fix it. We found anger and injustice, and they're at the heart of this final story. It was a way of dealing with um, my anger and it was a way of dealing with my anxiety about it. And I thought I have got to turn this into something positive. This is Rebecca Robertson, an actor, mother and transgender advocate. 17 years ago, she gave birth to two healthy twin boys. From the moment one of my twins could talk, um, she expressed herself as female and said that she was a girl. Rebecca has spent the last 15 years advocating and supporting her child Georgie to express herself as female in the face of a culture and institutions that are not set up to support transgender kids. Why was she angry? Because when puberty hit early for Georgie, Rebecca discovered they would have to go to the Family Court of Australia to access puberty blocking treatments that were crucial in making sure that Georgie's body didn't change against her will. The court process is expensive, time consuming and slow when puberty is fast. Many trans kids miss the window for treatment just because of this procedure. Many families neither have the time nor the money to even try. We're the only country in the world who does this to trans kids. So we were going through all of that, which I, I can tell you is just an awful experience. It's the very definition of powerlessness, I think, as a, as a parent, because um, essentially your decision-making as a parent is taken away from you. So yeah, she was angry. Angry that her family was dragged through the courts angry at being made to feel powerless to protect her child. And that kind of anger, in Rebecca's case, has a potency, a power and a commitment that really kept her motivated to keep fighting, to persevere. It keeps you wanting to push, 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 push. And that chipping away, that dripping on the stone, that's grit personified. And the anger that may have incensed that individual so much to want to keep that cause going, even when the cards were stacked against her, you become the embodiment of your beliefs because it's no longer grit, it's a cause. It's energy generating for you and those that you then see the outcomes for. 
So what happened? Through her relentless efforts, she managed to change the law, ending the requirement of families to go to court, and started Transcend, a national support network. And it was all driven by anger at injustice. When you have a a, a child who's experiencing something that is so uh, difficult culturally for people to understand and accept, there is nothing that you won't do to clear the way for your child. There's nothing you won't do. Perhaps we need to add another element to Amy Vrznevsky's theory. Job, career, calling, and anger. Is that the biggest motivator of them all? So that's it, is it? That's, we're going to finish there? Like, is that, is this the end? Um, yeah, I think so. We started this project because some of our own ambitions had been realised and some hadn't. Our perspectives on ambition were changing and we wanted to explore the theme in a broader context. And we've still got all these questions swirling around. So, Rach, has your relationship to ambition changed at all since you have become a parent? Yeah, it has, in a surprising way. I actually feel... I actually feel more ambitious than before. Yeah, right. Which kind of took me by surprise. Um, I guess there's something in me now that feels like there's not a lot of time to muck around and um, I just want to get stuck in and I want to do the things that scare me and I want to do the big projects and, yeah, there's a... There's strangely a a fearlessness about that. Yeah. Cool. So has this podcast project had any impact on your relationship to ambition? Um, It certainly made me think about things, but I think I'm still in the same place of unknown. You know, like I still dream too big. I still want to make a difference and and, um, do good things in the world. And I still stress about... uh, the impact of workaholism or like the personal sacrifices. So no. Yeah. (laughs) In a sense, the whole point is living the question. Do you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, um, not that you wouldn't want to pin down potential solutions like to those questions about ambition. You do want to identify what are probable kind of and reasonable solutions to these problems. But even if you wanted to, which you shouldn't, they're not questions to be solved once and for all. Mm. And even if I, if I or the greatest philosopher alive was to say, well, here's the solution, you know, I've worked on it for a lifetime, here it is, take it, you won't have to worry about it. Um, nobody would be satisfied with that because it's not my solution or the greatest philosopher's alive solution or the greatest philosopher ever lived solution that we want. We have to find a meaning for that way of thinking about things in our own lives. We're living the challenge of these questions all the time. So if you got into an Uber now and they asked you what you do, what would you say? Uh, <laughs> that is still a very difficult question to answer. No, it's, it's easier to avoid the question because it's, 
Thank you to Alex Patel, Kim McGregor, Marcella Bressett, Doug McAvoy, Ruth Fraser, Rebecca Robertson, Rob Hart and Paul Healy. Other voices you heard were Nelson Mandela, Angela Duckworth, courtesy of Spartan Up Podcast, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Strive is created by Rachel Dyson McGregor and Mike McAvoy with sound designer and producer Darius Kedros with support from the city of Yarra. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review or let us know what you think via strivestrivestrive.com. Note, funding was received from the city of Yarra before Mike McAvoy was elected to city of Yarra. (laughs) Spoken by Mike McAvoy. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.